The headline reads this. Do these ancient letters from Jesus Christ's own family prove that he was, all caps, not divine? The subhead of the article is an attempt at gaining even more attention. It says this, Jesus Christ was not the Son of God. He was not divine and was probably not even crucified, according to letters written allegedly by his own family. Here's the article. I want you to listen to this. It's from a British newspaper called The Express. It was written about two years ago, October of 2016. Letters which have emerged seemingly written by his own family and those closest to him in the few years after Christ's death, which many scholars agree was in the early 30s A.D., paint Jesus as a mortal. It's widely accepted that Jesus had several younger siblings, The Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew both state that Jesus had four brothers, James, Joseph, or Joseph, Jude, um, or Judas, but not that Judas, and Simon, and both books also claim that he had several unnamed sisters. That is true, by the way. The article goes on. However, the letters written by James and Jude both fail to state that Jesus was divine or the Son of God. In the original book of James, which was believed to have been written in the first century, making it one of the oldest Christian texts, it describes Jesus as his follower's master, but there is no mention of divinity. There's not even a mention that Jesus was crucified, one of the cornerstones of the Christian faith. In a documentary called The Secret Jesus, James Tabor, professor of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina, says that the letters from James, the younger brother of Jesus, blow Christianity wide open. He said, the thing about the book of James, it's the teachings of Jesus, not the teachings about Jesus. James passes on what he got from his brother. You could say it has no theology, this guy says. Doesn't mention the cross of Christ, doesn't mention the blood of Jesus, doesn't mention forgiving sins through believing in the Lord. Nothing like that, he says. One of the earliest Christian books, the, the uh, Didache, the teachings of the Twelve Apostles, written when Christ's surviving family were still alive in the first century A.D., this article says it also seems to paint Jesus as a human and recommends people follow his teachings rather than the man himself. In the Didache, there's again no reference to the virgin birth, the resurrection, and most significantly of Jesus as God, but rather as his servant. This ancient book also details early communion, where there's no uh, information of bread and wine being the body and blood of Christ. And then the article goes on to make these unsubstantiated claims. It says this, The early Christian church hid these books for centuries in order to push a different story of Christ. It says, however, one seems to have slipped through. In the Bible, a letter from Jude, another of Christ's brothers, seems to show that the people who personally knew Jesus were growing tired of the followers who had jumped onto Christianity and were pushing the divine agenda. The passage from Jude reads this, and he quotes from Jude. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouthed boasters flattering people to gain advantage. And Mr. Tabor answered this, or he added this. He said, Jude is getting very worried, and he's telling the little group that will still listen to him, I think, in effect, he's saying, don't listen to all these new things that are coming along. You fight hard for that original faith that was delivered to us. 
Now, I don't know if you caught all that this article was insinuating, but essentially what it was saying was that for centuries, the church hid the, book of, the books of James and Jude, although maybe Jude slipped through the cracks, along with this book, the Didache, which is essentially a book of church order that wasn't even seen as, it's never been seen as scripture and it wasn't discovered until 1873. And the reason the article claims that the, that the church suppressed James and Jude, which it never did, was because these letters were written by Jesus' own brothers and, and they never explicitly claimed that he was God. In fact, the article actually twists a passage from Jude to make it mean something that it clearly does not mean. In fact, even the opposite of what it means. And they do all of this to attack the Bible and to attack Christianity and they get away with it because their readers have never read the Bible and they're never going to check the Bible to see if these claims are true, which they are clearly not. Here's why I read you this article this morning as we begin and jump back into John's gospel. There was a time when Jesus' own brothers, um, his own family, did not believe in him. There was a time when those closest to Jesus rejected his claims and, and thereby rejected him. Now, that rejection was gone by the time James and Jude wrote their letters, their epistles. But in John chapter 7, his own brothers do not believe in him. So turn there this morning, if you're not already there. We're going to pick up our study of John's gospel today. We left off at the end of chapter 6 back on, I think it was September 30th, so it's been a little while. But if you remember... That chapter, John chapter 6, ends with this, this massive crowd of his disciples, of his followers, turning back, it says in verse 66, and no longer walking with him. Because they never believed. Because when he started teaching hard things, their disbelief became evident, and, and so they left. And so Jesus said to the twelve, his twelve disciples, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have, come, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so he's left with the twelve when he had thousands previously. But it's actually worse than that because one of the twelve, he even will tell us, John will tell us, and Jesus said, was a devil. Judas, who would go on to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. But as we see in today's passage, it's actually even worse than that. So let's read John 7, verses 1 to 13. John 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast. 
for my time has not yet fully come. After this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. Let's just stop and pray right here. Lord, you are the one that we adore. I pray that you would give us what we need this morning. Speak to us through your word. Help us to understand that we may be transformed into Christ's likeness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in order to understand what's going on here in chapter 7, um, we really need to do a little bit of background work. And so the story here picks up in verse 1, about six months after Jesus was, was purged of nearly all of his disciples. It picks up about six months after the events of chapter 6. I'll explain how we know that in a moment. But this is significant because this, this puts us now in John chapter 7, about six months from the cross. So think about that. Jesus is now about six months from the cross. So we know that Jesus' public ministry lasted for about three years. All of the Gospels are in agreement on that point. John specifically marks the passage of time throughout his Gospel by mentioning these various Jewish feasts and celebrations, like he does here in verse 2. But he especially mentions Passover. Passover is an annual event. It happened just once a year. And in John's gospel, these feasts are very important. In fact, all of Jesus' trips to Jerusalem are linked to a feast, to one feast or festival or another. But we should remember and bear in mind when we look at all of these things that the feasts always point to something else. So, for example, in chapter 2, verse 13... Uh, John mentions that this is the first uh, Passover during Jesus' ministry. He, he says this explicitly. He says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This was the time that he cleaned out the temple, flipped over the tables and the, of the money changers. And, and then in chapter 3, he has this kind of nighttime conversation with Nicodemus. Then a year passes between John chapter 2, 3, and, and, and all the way up to chapter 6, verse 4, which says again, just simply, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And so now we're in the second year of Jesus' ministry. And then the third Passover is mentioned in chapter 13, verse 11, which says this. It's actually mentioned in 12, 1. And then 13.1 also. 13.1 says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. And this begins the, the final days of Jesus' life leading up to the crucifixion. But here, back in John 7, we find another festival or feast mentioned, and this is six months before he goes to the cross. Technically, we could say that, that verse 1 records a passage of time of about six months. So look at verse 1. 
After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go uh, about in Judea because the Jews are seeking to kill him. So for six months, uh, roughly, he goes about in Galilee. Now, we were already told back in, back in chapter 5, verse 18, that the Jews in Jerusalem, the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And now this, this sentiment, these feelings among the Jews, it's not limited to the city anymore. It has now spread throughout the entire countryside of Judea. It's not safe for him there. He's still fairly safe up in Galilee, uh, although we saw in chapter 6 that he's been rejected there too. And so what should be clear at this point in, is that his message, his ministry is no secret. Everyone seems to have, have heard of Jesus. That's It's one of the reasons why on the road to Emmaus, uh, after his resurrection, when he asks the two men what they were talking about, their response, part of their response from Luke 24, verses 18 and 19 is this, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And from that point on, they go on to talk specifically about the crucifixion and the, the trial and crucifixion. But they already know who he was before he was crucified. They said he was a, he was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. But at this point, nearly all of them are looking at him with suspicion, even, as we see from this passage, his own family. I know that there are several in this room uh, who are looked upon with suspicion by your family because you're a Christian. Or maybe you're looked upon with suspicion because you're not a nominal Christian and you actually take the Word of God seriously. Let me remind you of one simple fact before we even go any more. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 says this. I read this in Sunday school too. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus was tempted. Jesus was tempted with regards to how his family treated him in the same ways that we're tempted. And so he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. But it is important to remember, important to view kind of this interaction with his family within the larger context of Jesus' ministry. So, so simply put, we could say this, kind of taking some words from chapter 1, the more the, the more the light shines, the more the darkness is revealed for what it truly is. And at least for the time being, Jesus' own family is lost in darkness. But that great truth from John 1, 5 is this, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not overcome it. 
So everyone seems to be, seems to be looking at Jesus with suspicion, including the Jews who are seeking to kill him. And so part of the setting here is that Jesus is now, he's now essentially a wanted man. But John gives us a little bit more of the setting in verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So this is, of course, what I was, uh, kind of goes back to what I was saying a moment ago about the, about the time frame and the importance of the feasts in John's gospel. And it's helpful to understand the feasts. God's law... Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16 says this. This is the law for the people of Israel. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the feast of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, and at the feast of booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So three times a year, according to the law, the men were to gather, to all the males, men and boys, were to gather before the Lord at these three different feasts. Now, I know that this is kind of a lot of background to this passage, but really quickly, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the first one that I mentioned, this is the feast during which the Passover is celebrated. So it is, it is to commemorate God's deliverance from their slavery in Egypt, and they do this every spring. In fact, this is how we set the date for Easter, even in modern times, around the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It takes place in the spring. The Feast of Weeks, the second feast they're commanded to follow, um, it was later known as Pentecost. This takes place in the summer, seven weeks after Passover, why it's called the Feast of Weeks. Seven weeks after Passover. And it celebrates the, the first fruits of the harvest, the, the first crops coming off the fields. So when we would have a garden, it's the radishes. They were always the first thing that would come in for us. We would celebrate. This is the Feast of Weeks. It takes place in the summertime. And then, of course, the Feast of Booths, this one mentioned here. It's sometimes it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. This is like our Thanksgiving. It, it marks the completion of the harvest season. And it also acts as a, as a reminder of the 40 years Israel spent in the wilderness living in tents, tabernacles, booths. Uh, that's what this word means, booths. Think of tents, tabernacles. It was a festive time of year. It was a festive celebration. People would put up tents and they would camp out in the streets. It was a joyful time. The harvest was in the barn. The people could relax and rejoice and praise God. But this was not the case for Jesus, not this year. He knew that his time was drawing near and that the Jews were seeking to kill him. And so this is the backdrop to which this chapter opens. This is the backdrop to the, to the conversation that we see between Jesus and his brothers. And as we read verses 3 to 5 here, notice the, notice the undercurrent of family rejection. Family rejection. Verses 3, 4, and 5. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Then John says this in verse 5, For not even his brothers believed in him. Now, if we just read verses 3 and 4 without verse 5, we might, we might assume that his brothers have pure motives. But John tells us that they're not believers. So there's something else going on here. Maybe. Maybe they've seen the signs and wonders, and 
They want others to as well, like the, like the crowds in, in chapter 6 that had followed him all the way across the Sea of Galilee because he had, because he had fed the 5,000 men with just a few, uh, couple of fish and five loaves. Seems to be what they're saying in verse 3. So his brothers said, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing, the miracles, the signs, the wonders. But verse 4 kind of makes this inference. They kind of infer there that he's been secretive. But chapter 6 tells us he hasn't been secretive. He's had thousands of people following him all over Galilee who have just abandoned him. So bad that he's essentially in hiding because the Jews are looking to kill him. So we we might assume here that his family knew that the Jews wanted to kill him. Seems to not be a secret. Look at verse 4 again. No one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. This wouldn't be the first time in the Bible that brother turned against brother, or brothers turned against brother. Think of Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery, actually wanting to kill him and coming to a compromise that he would be sold into slavery. But we need to zoom out for a minute and kind of look at the, the big picture of what's going on in Jesus' ministry. See, the challenge that Jesus faces right here in this moment, the challenge that he faces in the community, is the same challenge that he faces at home, even in his own family, even his own brothers. And, and that word for brothers actually means siblings. So maybe his sisters are there as well. But his own family. At best, these family members, these brothers, at best, they simply want to see miracles. At worst, they're mocking him and and taunting him, daring him to go to Jerusalem and, and reveal himself for who he claims to be. But either way, John tells us they don't believe in him. And honestly, at this point, it's kind of hard to tell which end of the spectrum they fall under. Are they just enamored with the, with the miracles, or are they taunting him? We're not really sure. But what is clear is that they don't believe. Jesus had said back in John chapter 4 that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. We can see that even in some cases that prophet has no honor even in his own home. J.C. Ryle, Bishop of Liverpool, 1900, He said this about this verse. He said, Believers often blame themselves because their families remain worldly and unbelieving. But let them look at this verse before us. In our Lord Jesus Christ, there was no fault, either in temper, word, or deed. Yet even Christ's own brethren did not believe in him. This should comfort a bit those here this morning with with unbelieving families. And if that's you, if you're proclaiming the gospel to them and they continue to reject, then it's not because you're doing something wrong. You need to see that from this verse. It's not because you're doing something wrong. It's not because your prayers aren't being heard. So keep praying. Keep preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to them. Keep proclaiming the truth to them. Here's why. Because immediately after Jesus had ascended to heaven, in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we read this. All these, that is the twelve, less Judas the, the traitor, with one accord 
were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In other words, after he left, after Jesus went away to heaven, Mary and his brothers believed. At least James and Jude. And they were some of the very first to believe. With the eleven, a few women, Mary and his brothers. So don't stop praying for your own families. But look at what he says to them next in in verse 6. Jesus said to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. This idea, this phrase, my time has not yet come, it's a pretty common refrain for Jesus to use. Um, back at the wedding at Cana, when he changed the water into wine, his first miracle, the first sign in the book of, of John, his mother kind of hinted at him to display his power publicly. that They've run out of the good wine. And he uses this same phrase to Mary, his mother. He actually says, my hour has not yet come. What does he mean by this? My time has not yet come, or my hour has not yet come. Well, certainly, Jesus' life follows a a definite pattern with the time set by what, what theologians call God's eternal decree. His decree, God's decree, is his, his plan or his purpose that has existed in God's mind from eternity past. So let me trace this for you through with just a few passages from the Old Testament. There's a lot, but I'm just going to give you a couple. All of these pertain to God's eternal decree of the coming Messiah. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he makes this promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel, he says to the serpent. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, he says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah. For to us a child is given. To us a, a son is born. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All of Isaiah chapter 11, we read that last week. All of Psalm chapter 2, but just listen to verses 7 and 8 of of Psalm 2. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. All of these verses and so many more culminate in what what Paul calls the the fullness of time. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, he writes this, But when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And this was true for all of his life, not just his birth, when God's eternal decree would come to pass. But it was especially true of his death. Romans chapter 5, listen to verses 6 and then verse 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that time here had not yet come. But whether or not his brothers understood any of this, their words in verse 4 were what Jesus was responding to here. Look again at verse 4. No one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Jesus was saying, I will show myself to the world soon. But he will not be pressured He will not succumb to the temptation to display his power outside of God's eternal decree. This is why verse 1 says that he would not go to Judea. He refused to go to Judea because his time had not yet come. It wasn't like he was afraid. It wasn't right. Let's be clear. This is a genuine temptation here. Jesus in his flesh was tempted. Part of Satan's temptation of Jesus back in, back in Matthew chapter 4 was to have him reveal himself by having angels catch him if, as he jumped off the, the temple or to turn stones into bread to reveal who he was. He was tempting him to break God's eternal decree, but Jesus would not be persuaded. His time had not yet come. But there's a There's a narrower sense here that Jesus uses this phrase as well. They probably, his brothers, probably, in fact, almost certainly, they didn't understand this to be an eschatological statement. There's the big word. They probably didn't understand this to be a statement of of God's plan for the fullness of time. It's probably not what they understood when he said, my time has not yet come. Probably they understood him to say here, I'm not ready, you go ahead without me. That's probably what they understood him to say. And in a sense, this is also true, but for a different reason than they would think. Because of the holiday, because of the feast. Remember, the the Feast of Booths, verse 2 says, is, is at this time, the Feast of Booths is connected to the harvest. The feasts always point at something else. The Feast of Booths is connected to the harvest. It was a celebration that pointed to God's provision of of full barns, but also his provision through the Exodus. But God's decree was for Jesus to be the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, which enabled the Exodus. It kicked off the Exodus, their escape from slavery. See, the Feast of Booths, was traditionally associated with with glory and rejoicing. We have food in the barns. We're safe. We're safe for another year. But before they could be safe, they needed to be rescued. They needed to be delivered by his shed blood on the cross. Richard Phillips, in his commentary on John, says it this way. It's very simple. 
He says, therefore, when Jesus' brothers advised him to display himself at the Feast of Booths, they were speaking of the glory that awaits his second coming. They were advising him to put on the crown before first taking up the cross. Similarly, St. Augustine, or Augustine if you're from Florida, said they were giving him the counsel to pursue glory as advising in a worldly manner and with an earthly disposition. This is what the Lord says in answer to those who were giving him counsel of glory. My time is not yet come. The time of my glory is not yet come. Jesus tells them that the time for him to go up to Jerusalem is not right. It's not, it's not time for his crucifixion yet. It's not time for him to take his throne. It's not time for his glorification yet. It's not time to rejoice in him yet. But these are not his disciples. He says in verse 7 that you can go anytime you want. You're missing the whole point of this. You're missing the whole point of the harvest. Just go ahead. His brothers know nothing of God's plan. They know nothing of God's agenda because they're part of the world. They're part of the world that, that hates him. Part of the world that hates him because he says that the, their ways are evil. And so he sends them along. And really the implication of verse 8 is that he'll go when his time has come. When the decree of God calls for him to go. And so what happens in verse 10 is that he does in fact go to the feast, but he does so in the opposite manner of his brother's suggestion. He goes quietly. He goes discreetly. He goes privately. And instead of the focus being on him, the scriptures here gives us the opportunity to see what is being said about him. So look at verses 10 to 13. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, but uh, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. The crowds were whispering and muttering about Jesus. He arrives in Jerusalem to find everyone is looking for him. We saw this in chapter 6 when people came from, from all over the Sea of Galilee to find him. The same thing happened in Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1, after, after he's healed many, and Simon Peter, he goes off to pray, and Simon Peter finds him and says to him, everyone is looking for you. And the common denominator, Jesus responds, let's go to the next town then. The common denominator in these things is that, when, is that Jesus avoided the crowds when they missed his point. When they missed the point of who Jesus is and what he was doing and what he was saying, he avoided the crowds. When they, were either, when they were either there for the miracles, or even they might have been there for his powerful teaching, and that's clear that in this case too, he's maintaining a low profile and they're missing the point. And look at these three groups of people here. The Jews are still looking for him. Where is he? They want to kill him. But then there are those who say that he's a good man. Now there's no indication of belief here. None whatsoever. Um, to them, Jesus seems like a, a very nice young man out doing good deeds for the people. He's a good teacher. Leave him alone. He's a good guy. And then there are those who say that Jesus is actually leading people astray. 
He's leading them away from the law. He's deceiving Israel, they say. And honestly, not much is said about these last two groups, except that they're, they're muttering or whispering about him. And the fear of the Jews is, is ruling over them. And the point here, I think, is that the, the hostility toward Jesus is increasing, increasing such that now everyone is afraid to even talk about him. They wouldn't publicly associate with him at all. His own family didn't believe in him. And at best, the world thought he was simply a good man. But Jesus is not just a good man. This whole scene reveals a, a growing conflict between Jesus and, and everyone around him. Even those closest to him. Even his own family. Even his own brothers. He seemed to try to send him off to his enemies almost in a, in a mocking way. Go up there and show them who you are. This is the depth of the conflict between light and darkness, between holy and unholy. It even, it even divides families. But listen to what Jesus says about this. In Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35, Jesus says this, we read this, Mark tells us, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And then Paul says this about Christians in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If you are a Christian, you have a new family. If you are a Christian, you are members of the household of God. You remember the Gaithers. Some of you remember them quite well. Gloria wrote this. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod, for I'm a part of the family, the family of God. It's only fitting that we conclude this morning by reading the doxology. This is the doxology is the ending of a, of a brief letter written by Jude, one of Jesus' own biological brothers, half-brothers. One of these brothers who here in John chapter 7 did not believe and said, why don't you go ahead and go to Jerusalem and reveal yourself? Yet later he comes to know and to trust that his brother, Jesus Christ, is in fact his Lord and his Savior. And he finishes his little letter by saying this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Jesus' brother said that, who would call himself, as James did, his servant, his slave, because he was a part of the family of God. Not because he was born into it, but because he believed in him. Let's pray. Lord, we can't, we can't say it any better than Jude does. So we pray now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of your glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.